Um, or I guess we're not going to start with the Word of God. We're going to start with the game show. Is that okay? Is that fair? You're all going to be the contestants, okay? So, what is a vegetarian, okay? <laughs> Many of you know I'm a vegetarian. This is not a, a sermon trying to convince you to be a vegetarian. Vegetarianism is purely an illustration, so do not take that for anything other than what it is. It is an illustration. Don't get mad, okay? What is a vegetarian? I, I, I think that this would be actually a good game show because the majority of people in my life don't know what a vegetarian is. It's funny because all of you are like, I know what a vegetarian is. But um, most people get it confused with several other things. They're like, oh, okay, so you don't eat this. And then I go, no, I do eat that. And they go, oh, but I thought you said you're a vegetarian. I'm like, well, clearly you don't know what that is. And they're like, oh, okay, but you eat this though. And I go, oh, no, I don't eat that. And then they go, wait, wait, wait. So, okay. So we're going to play, what is a vegetarian? I need uh, raise hands so that we can, so that we can uh, do this well. Okay, first object. Does John eat this? Raise hands. Who thinks they know? Do I eat cows? Yes, Adelaide. No, she is right. I do not eat cows. Who got that one right? Okay, great. Okay, how about this one? Do I eat this? Scott says no. Scott is right. Who is everybody right? You're right about that? Great. Okay. What about this? Oh, wait, wait. I'm hearing different answers. Wait. Go, Jim Bergstrom. No. I don't eat this. Who got that one wrong? Yeah, a couple people. A couple people. See? See? Now, you, if I ate fish, I would be a pescatarian. So I don't eat fish. That's not what a vegetarian is. You've lost. Okay. Uh, another one. Eggs. Do I eat eggs? Oh, yeah, Mark. No, Mark says no. Mark, I'm sorry. You would be wrong. That would be a vegan if I didn't eat eggs. Yes, I eat eggs. You're close. You're close. See, we have tons of different words for these things. Last one, you can all say it together. Do I eat this? Yeah. Yes, of course I do. Broccoli, that's all I eat, right? That's probably what most of you think. <laughs> the, the purpose of this is to tell you that words matter. Titles matter. What we are, what we define ourselves as, matters. And so what happens is, uh, it gets more and more confusing every day, I'll be honest with you. But what happens is, uh, most times that I say I'm a vegetarian, people will cook things like without any dairy products, to which I'll say, no, I actually eat those. As a vegetarian, you eat dairy, but if you're a vegan, you wouldn't eat dairy. Or somebody will say, oh, okay, but you can have fish, right? And I, no, that's a pescatarian, right? So people don't know, but part of the issue and this is where I'm going to try and kind of get to this morning. Part of the issue is that in modernity, it's like in, when this kind of came out, these different variations of vegetarianism or veganism, uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, when people started, when this became popular, people have been vegetarians for a long time. Daniel was a vegan, right, So in the Bible. So we, we, we see some of these things happen um, over time. But when we started making words for this and it became popularized, right, we started developing new terms, and, and as we built on them, people who eat meat or might not necessarily be interested in what the different terms are get confused about which one is which. And so then we have terms like this. Hey, Eli, do you mind going up there? Where is he? Hey, can you go put up a black background? It's kind of hard to read with the, 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 the thing because I didn't put an outline around it. Thanks, Eli. So we come up with terms like this, which is, oh, look at there you go. Scott, he already got it. Boom. Man, Jim's on it. 
Um, we come up with terms like this, which is a term that came out in the 90s. Who knows what a flexitarian is? Yeah, go ahead, Abby. Right, it means basically you're a vegetarian, but sometimes you eat meat. Are you getting where I'm, what, are, you, are you starting to pick up what we're going to talk about this morning? See, when we talk about being all in, a lot of times what people do is they decide to be Christian flexitarians. And I'm not, if you're a flexitarian, I'm not knocking you. But what people tend to do in kind of our more modern era is they say, well, I get to define whatever I am um, just based on my own terms. So they make up words like flexitarian to say, no, I'm a vegetarian. I have all of the benefits that come with that. I would never, and let, let's see, this is what, um, see, we can be trendy and we can be like woke to the suffering of animals. We can appreciate that the factory farming system is destroying our environment and is harming all sorts of animals and it's, it's, you know, it's churning out animal sacrifices. But then when we go to McDonald's, chicken McNuggets are delicious. <laughs> Which is, of course, a joke because you all know there's no meat in chicken McNuggets. But you see what I'm saying? Look, we, we can be a, we, there are a lot of people who are becoming vegetarians only when it's convenient. Right? They're becoming vegetarians only when it's convenient. This is the same thing in many cases, not for everyone, but this is the same thing with, with what I'm seeing in my own life. And this is not all people who are gluten-free. There are people who have gluten allergies, and that's a real thing. But there are a lot of people who go like, oh, I don't eat gluten. Well, but like on Thursdays, I go to Panera, and the MedVeg is just delicious. So like once in a while. But really the problem with this is that what we do is we take this, and we've been taking this for thousands of years, we take this concept of like, I'm this, but like sometimes I don't do that, and we apply that to Christianity, and it's what I like to call a la carte Christianity. It's Christianity, or it's faith in Christ, that you do when it's convenient. But sometimes when it's not convenient, like you'll just kind of like, you know, eat steak if you're at Pete Miller's. You know what I mean? Like if you're there, if it's a good steak, or I'll eat chickens as long as they're free range, which just means that they're not in cages, but they're still like jammed together, right? We make consolations and caveats for ourselves so that we can define whatever we want. We try and take this book and we try to fit it into our box rather than looking at it and saying, okay, what does it say here? What am I supposed to do? What does it say? We say, no, no, no. I'm going to do what it says when it's convenient. And I got news. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you don't really get to pick and choose when it's convenient. In fact, there's an entire book in the back of the Bible, it's called Revelation, that talks, and, and depending on your view of Revelation, this can mean a lot of different things, but basically what Revelation talks about is how Christians, either in the past or in the future, persisted in the face of tribulation, in the face of oppression. Christians during this time, Christians were being oppressed in the, in, the, in the Roman Empire. They were being oppressed by the Emperor Domitian, and he was making it really, really difficult to be a Christian. He was uh, killing Christians, and he was making it illegal to be Christians, and, all this, and Nero did it before him. And so the whole, they wrote the whole book about, hey, you don't just get to be a Christian when it's convenient. Actually, to be a Christian, you have to be a Christian all the time. And so you're saying, okay, John, but in the book, it says, in the, in the, in the program for this morning, in the, in the worship folder, it says we're talking about finances. And that's because in my 
humble opinion, the number one place that people decide that it's inconvenient to be a Christian is when it comes to giving of their resources. Okay? So we're going to talk about finances this morning because ultimately we'd all like to believe. See, we fantasize about the time when we're going to be like forced to stand up for our faith. We make movies about it, three of them. Right? Pure Flicks made these movies, and they are fictionalizations, they're romanticization, or, or, or romanticized versions of this biblical idea that you're going to face tribulation. And so people want really actionable movies that show you you're going to be in a college classroom, and you're going to have to pick your grade or God. Or you're going to be going through the legislature and they're going to say, you can't be a Christian and you're going to say, I stand with God. And the movies are really, really watered down versions. I'm not saying you can like the movies, it's not a problem. I'm saying the movies are really watered down versions of actually our everyday experience. I went to college. There was no philosophy professor that stood up and said, God's dead. Prove me wrong. I mean, like, it's just not a real scenario, but we fictionalize scenarios because we don't want to deal with the fact that there are ways in which we're being challenged to live out our faith. We want to create archetypes or very specific situations. So here's one. Every single day you have the opportunity to choose whether you're going to be sold out for your faith, whether you're going to be all in for your faith, without creating a dr grand dramatized narrative, whether you're actually going to be willing to sacrifice some of your security for God. You have that option every day. You don't have to wait for the state legislature to pass a law that says you can't pray in schools to go out and to stand up for your faith. You actually have the opportunity every single day to choose whether you're going to trust God or not trust God. It's called giving, generos giving generously or generous giving. And so, yes, we're going to talk about finances this morning. So I want everybody to start, because this is something that my home church didn't do. Uh, Stewardship Sunday came around once a year, um, and it was the second most uncomfortable that we ever got. The most uncomfortable that we ever got was whenever the pastor would say the word sex. Um, but you guys, I talk about sex all the time, so it's not a big deal here. But um, it, was, it was really uncomfortable when the, he didn't even touch politics, so we don't even get there. But when he had talked about, whoever the pastor was, whenever they talked about generosity, people get really anxious. They would get really stiff in there. And if you guys were in there, you'd be like, it's always stiff in here. But no, it was extra stiff. <laughs> it was extra stiff, okay? Extra stiff. And I already lifted up that congregation. They taught me holy, 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 okay? I'm like, I'm not knocking that congregation. All I'm saying is it got really uncomfortable. So I want you to do something with me. I want you to take a deep breath. Breathe it out. It's going to be okay. At the end of this, it's all going to be okay. You're going to be able to leave and tell me that I don't know anything about economics or finance. You don't have to listen to me. But for the next 20-ish minutes, you're going to get from me, or 15 minutes, you're going to get from me a biblical view of what I see in the text about stewardship or generosity. You can take it or leave it. Fair? Fair. You all okay with this? I have another sermon. It's on my iPad. Okay. <laughs> No? Okay, we're good? Okay, we're good. You're going to make through it. Okay. I'm going to give you guys, just so that you know where we're going, so that you can be more comfortable, people are more comfortable when they know where we're going, I'm going to run through a couple of scriptures. 
um, that have been speaking to me during this week and during this season. Then I'm going to pull out some reflections on those scriptures. And the last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a practical checklist that you can follow if you want to move towards generous giving. Sound fair? Okay, great. First, a caveat. (laughs) Whenever I talk about generous giving, I want you to hear that the rest of the sermon is about literal money. Literally. So do not take this as what he's really telling me is that I just need to volunteer more. I'm actually talking about your money. I am. So don't spiritualize it, hyper-spiritualize it, and well, no, he's just really talking about my time. Nope, talking about your money. However, however, there's a however. I'm not talking about necessarily that you have to give to this church. Hear that. People give to things that they are um, uplifted by, that they're passionate about, that they believe in. If you don't believe in this church, if you don't think that this church is doing effective ministry, if you don't think that this church is going to use your resources well, don't give to the church. God does not want your pity money. He doesn't. We'll be all right. We'll just pray. Manna from heaven. It'll come down. We're not worried about it. Now, if you're on board and you're all in for this church as well as the gospel, first of all, if you have to choose, pick the gospel. But if you're on board with both, then sure, maybe I'm going to talk about the church. But I am talking about literal money, but I'm not trying to solicit you here. I'm just telling you that this is a spiritual issue. Okay? Okay. So open your Bibles, if you will, with me, if you have them this morning. If you don't, shame on you, but I never tell you to open them. So I'm going to start doing that more. We're going to start reading from Acts 4. Uh, verse 32. Again, we're going to read right through the chapter line because chapter 5 starts with but. Whenever a chapter starts with but, it's probably talking about they had to just arbitrarily split it it up. It was getting too long. Um, So I'm going to read chapter uh, 32. You might have a different, your pew Bible is NIV, so it'll sound a little different, but now the whole group, that's the apostles, that's the believers, that Jesus is gone, he's ascended to heaven, they're all living together. It's a really great thing. Now the whole group of those who believed were in one heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or or houses sold them and brought the proceeds from what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, that's the leaders of the church, and they distributed it to each as they had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the, uh, to the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have an example. This is what you're supposed to do. If you're Barnabas, if the disciples are holding everything in common, he sold the field, he brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. But there was a man named Ananias. Okay, so now you're getting the dichotomy. But there was a man named Ananias. If it said, and there was a man named Ananias, Ananias is going to do the same thing. But, but means he's going to do something different. With the consent of his wife, Sapphira, so you know it's not just him, he gets the consent of his wife first, which you should always do when you're selling a piece of property, um, because otherwise you'll be sleeping on the couch. Uh, he sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge and kept back some of the proceeds. He put only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of your land? He doesn't even cut corners. Peter's just straight out with him. Okay. Um, While it remained unsold, uh, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds uh, contrived? 
sorry, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. So when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. Pause there. He died. Okay. Like literally. Crazy. Great fear seized all who heard of it. Yeah, no kidding. Um, the young man came and wrapped up his body and carried, it, uh, carried him out and buried him. They still respected him. They still respected him as a brother, but he had died for what he did. An interval of about three hours, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether your husband sold the property for such a price. Then she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down on his feet dead and died. When the young men found her, they carried her out beside her husband and with great fear seized the whole church who heard of these things. Again, no kidding. It's brutal. Okay? It's brutal. That's literally what happened. They held back something. Everybody had need, and they held back something. One more scripture. This one comes from the Gospel of Luke. This is Jesus talking about, uh, this comes from uh, Luke 25. Sorry, I'm not skipping through these with you. My bad. Okay. Whoever does not carry his cross and follow me, carry the cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether they have enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid the foundation and was not able to finish it, all who will see, all will see and begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a dele uh, delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciples unless you give up all your possessions. The word of God does not mince words about how generosity works. A lot of people will tell you that the New Testament teaches this principle called tithing, which is giving 10% of what you own to the church. That's actually an Old Testament principle. If you wanted to only view the New Testament, you wanted to throw out the Old Testament, only view the New Testament, what, the only thing you could possibly come away with is that 100% is what God demands. God does not ask for some, he asks for all. So let's deal with that first passage. We have a story from the early church. It's a little extreme. Can we all agree it's a little extreme? Okay. But actually, probably not. See, the subtitle in, in, in my Bible, when I go to this, reads Ananias and Sapphira. What it easily could read is God doesn't ask you for some. God asks for all of you. God deems Ananias' lack of trust so dangerous to the beloved community that he literally puts them to death rather than to let their dishonesty continue. I believe this for two reasons. One, because the beloved community was so important. And I want to just take a moment here. We are not in the same way the beloved community. This was the core group of people who had literally seen Jesus. They were the only people who really knew what Jesus had taught at this point. They were incredibly important. If there had been seeds of division and, and that community had fallen apart, we wouldn't have scripture today. So that group was incredibly important, so God guarded it very, very, very closely. 
That's the first piece. The second piece was because it was an affront and disrespectful to God. And the reason that it was disrespectful to God was because they didn't really have a problem with greed. What they had a problem with was trust. Because that's why I, start, that, that's why I started, when I, when I read from Acts, that's why I started in, in verse 32. See, if you just start with Ananias and Sapphira, you go like, what did they really do wrong? Right? They, they held back a little bit of savings so that they could care for themselves. But if you go back into, verse, into chapter 4, where before it says but, you go back into chapter 4, it says, but they didn't need to hold anything back. Because everyone who, who came was well cared for. The problem that we have more often than greed is trust. We're not focused. At, at some point, we talked about this last week, there is a point in your discipleship where you're still going after if you're, once, you, you know, once you start to walk on this path with Jesus, where you're still going after like the nicer car, or the nicer house, or the nicer stuff. And that comes back, it creeps back in at times. But there's a time when you know, you're waiting anxiously for the next iPhone to come out because like, I just gotta have it. But over time, hopefully, if you invest yourself in scripture and you invest yourself in the word of God, if you invest yourself in Christian community, if you invest yourself in a, in a thriving prayer life, that stuff will kind of fade away. So it's not about greed. It's about security. It's about trust. And so, we read in the text that everyone was provided for, but yet they still didn't trust. They were more concerned about their earthly security than their eternal security. In the same way that people are comfortable saying that they are mostly vegetarians, people are comfortable with saying that they mostly trust God. They're Christian flexitarians. I trust God to a point, but I'm not giving up my chicken McNuggets. But I'm not giving up fish. And this is that tension that I was feeling before, that you feel right now. Remember we said, it's going to be okay, we're going to get through. So, I said that I was going to contextualize this. The first thing that I have to say, because like literally, I can't, if I don't say this, then I'm not being faithful to scripture, is that my, if you ask me for the, 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 the safest possible reading of this text for you, if you're like, I want this, John, I just want the safest reading of this text without any human interpretation on it. I just want exactly, the, the safest reading of this text to sell everything you own and give all the money away. That's the safest reading of this text. Now I'm going to provide you with an alternative. But hear that my alternative can be flawed because my alternative comes from a place of me interpreting this with 21st century lens. So you want the safest reading of the text? You just heard it. My alternative is this. We don't live in a society where we live in an intentional community where our needs are 100% cared for. And so therefore, we probably it would not be wise for us to give 100%. If we gave 100% and then there was no safety net of a, of a community, a Christian community where everyone was cared for, then what would result is that we would then just have to start, we would be in the same financial position as those who were in need that we just helped. So that's, that's the other alternative. Like I said, the, the easiest, the simplest, the clearest reading of the text is just sell everything you own, you'll probably be all right. 
Because God says he's, he feeds the, the, the birds of the air and uh, he clothes the lilies of the field. So, you know, if he forgets and you just die of starvation, then I don't, you know, maybe God will just look at you and say, oh, shoot, you know, I forgot. Uh, to, I had to care for you. Um, I just missed it. Peter, did you have this one? No, you didn't. Okay, Paul, did you? Okay, no. Okay, sorry. Okay, like maybe that will happen, but maybe not. Maybe you will be taken care of. But the alternative, my alternative, which I said is might be clouded in my own issues with generosity, because this is the hardest thing in my spiritual life is being generous. Transparency. Hardest thing that I have to do is give. The alternative comes from our second text this morning, which is counting the cost. So you say, how are these things related? Well, I believe that Jesus makes it very clear that what offering or giving is supposed to be through this counting, counting of the cost it's actually supposed to be a non-emotional decision. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So if you're gonna if you're gonna say, okay, I cannot give 100% because we don't have the structure, we don't have the community set up to support me in doing that, I'm going to give some. Then what Jesus would say in in this uh, this text from Luke is actually don't give emotionally. Let me give you an example of emotional giving. We drop all the lights down. We bring up the haze factor. Maybe some lights, maybe some spotlights. It's real dark, one person. Then we show you a slideshow of kids who are starving. And then we say, don't you feel like you need to give something right now? It's emotional giving. It's emotional giving. Or we say, this is propagated at some churches, and I don't believe that this is accurate theology. We say, just give. God will return it to you in blessing. Just give right now. Just give. Okay, no, no you're thinking that you're going to give this much. Okay, but now you've got to give more. Okay, I know I feel there's a spirit in this place. You, I know that there's one person who needs to give $100 more. Right? That's emotional giving. I'm spiritually abusing you by using your emotions. I think that actually this, this uh, Luke 14 text tells us a different story. Jesus says, don't be emotional. Be rational. Be logical. Because if you're emotional in following me, then as soon as that emotional high goes away, you won't follow me anymore. That's why so many people go to very, very large, entertaining churches and then live like they're not even Christians the rest of the week. Because they go for the emotional high, which I hope you never get here. They go for the emotional high just to leave, and then the emotion leaves and their relationship with Christ leaves. So instead, what I want to offer you is that there's a way to give that is non-emotional. You count the cost. So don't just blunder into things. Don't just run headlong into things and then be surprised. But he also says this in this passage. He begins the Luke passage by saying, whoever comes after me, oh, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. Here. For which of you intending to build a tower does not, sorry, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's what he starts with. And I think that sometimes we hyper-spiritualize this because we want to emotional, you know, we want to figure out, okay, what is carrying your cross like? We don't crucify people today. Thank God. But what does carrying your cross really look like? And then I hear people, uh, you know, of, and I'm not saying, this is not just young people. This is people of all generations. People saying things like, mm, my cross right now is jealousy. My cross that I am carrying right now is this relationship that I am in and it is toxic and I need to just carry that cross and just give it to Jesus. I, 
the cross that I am carrying right now is my relationship with HBO. I just need to give up that cross. Carrying crosses is not something that needs to be interpreted beyond just saying, be willing to die. That's what they heard. When Jesus said, carry your cross, it was not like a, a trendy term yet. Jesus made it up. So it's not like a trendy term where they're going, oh, what what's your cross to bear? Are you willing to die? So first, understand that it's about your very life. That's the first step to not being an emotional giver. Understand that Jesus demands your very life from you. And then base your, the rest of your life on that. So Jesus demands your very life, your eternity. The second thing that Jesus says Sorry, looking right here. Gonna find it. The second thing that Jesus says is now sit down and logically plan out your life around this thing that you have chosen to be. You have chosen to be a Christian. When I became a vegetarian, I had to sit down and logically plan out where I was going to eat. When I went to certain restaurants that I had been getting the same thing at for years and years because I do that, I had to plan out before I got there what I was going to do so I didn't walk up to the line in Potbelly's and I, I, I didn't know that the only sandwich that they had, full-size sandwich that they had on the menu, was a Mediterranean veggie with no chicken. I didn't know that that was the only vegetarian one. Funny joke, I worked at Potbelly's and I didn't know that that was the only vegetarian sandwich that they had because I had never been limited in my life by this thing that I was. And so I had to go there with intentionality. Not emotionally, I didn't have to walk up there and just say, I'm not eating chicken today, so what can I order? No, I like literally had to plan out ahead of time. Okay, when I go to Noodles & Company, what's on the, the, the menu that's vegetarian? Sometimes I have to improvise now when somebody takes me somewhere that doesn't really have anything, and I'm like, I'd like four sides of broccoli and a side of the hash browns, and like, right? But most of the time I plan out, I, I, I think about it before I go into that space. So I'm not caught off guard. So I'm not caught just getting emotional about how the world isn't set up for me, right? I have to think about it ahead of time. So here is where I'm going I'm, I'm to come here to your options. This is how you count the cost. This is your practical advice for today because we're just about done. This is your practical advice for today. One, don't be emotional about your giving. Be practical about your giving. Acts teaches us, and, and honestly Luke too with the carrying the cross thing, that there is a clear story that God does not ask for lukewarm gifts or lukewarm givers. God actually demands generosity that's going to put us at risk. And the second thing that Luke teaches us is that we're not supposed to make this decision emotionally, but thoughtfully and considerately. So here is your step-by-step. -step. You can write this down, pull out a phone, whatever. Here's your step-by-step. -step, how I moved from being a less generous giver to a more generous giver. And I got, you know what, here's the funny thing. I'm actually going to follow these steps with my wife, Jess. We're doing this this week. We're going we're gonna to do this because the last time I did it was last year. And so now every year you should do this because your financial situation changes. So every year you should go in and go, okay, we should redo this. So first thing, pray for a generous heart and detachment from unnecessary things. Pray for that. Start with prayer. Because if you don't start with prayer, the rest of it's going to get muddled up and mucked up, and you're not going to, you're going to be like, okay, unnecessary things, right? Like, but like, I need this for my emotional health. Whatever. 
You get what I'm saying. Next, sit down with your spouse. If you have one or if you don't have one, sit down with a trusted friend who you trust to help you make good decisions, Um, a person who's spiritually close to you, who holds the same values that you hold financially, and figure out actually what non-negotiable monthly expenses are. So that's step two. First step, pray about it. Second step, figure out what your non-negotiable monthly expenses are. Things like your mortgage or your rent or things like your health insurance or things like, you know what I mean? You, you get this, your food, it's non-negotiable. You can't not eat. But make sure that you leave off of that list things that are not non-negotiable. Your cable package is negotiable. Just because you like it and you want to put money towards it, you, I'm not going to tell you that you can't. I'm just going to tell you it's negotiable. So leave that off of your non-negotiable list. I know that a lot of people like Friday night at Japanese Kitchen, the sushi order, it's great. It's just not non-negotiable. Okay, number three. Now that you have that number, whatever it is, your income plus your, minus your expenses, your monthly expenses, now you realize that the rest is discretionary and together figure out with your family and, and I'm going to say something here. If you disagree with me, you come fight with me later, but I'm not going to get into it because I'll just go way too long. You say with your, when I say with your family, that includes your kids above the age of eight. It was one of the worst things, the worst way, my parents discipled me in an amazing way. One of the worst ways that they discipled me was that I had no idea how generous they were. And so then when I got it, I was just like, living and doing all this stuff, and I had never realized that they were so much more generous than I was. They were, I was like living, I was like, I'm going to buy this new couch, and they were like, oh yeah, we haven't bought a new couch since 1998, and I was like, but why? And it was because they were so generous, but I never knew, right? So sit down with your kids and decide what you're going to give for the rest of the year, for the rest of the 12 months, every month, decide what you're going to give, and then pray again. Is this the right amount? Then, Every month, either you can do, if you're going to give to the church, like I said, if you're going to give to another organization, that's fine too. I'm not talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about surrendering your finances. Whomever you surrender your finances to, if you surrender your finances to a homeless person on the street, that's fine. Whatever mission you're passionate about, if you're passionate about this church, that's fine. If you're not passionate about this church, don't give. Whatever you choose to surrender your finances to, if it's this church, then you can do it through online recurring giving, or you can just have this practice in your spiritual development, on the first of the month, write a check for that amount. Or if you have to do it every week, and you're just like, I do it every week, and I got to do it, on the first of every week, on Sunday of every week, you write the check. And it's a non-emotional experience. It's not based on what you feel, it's based on what you've decided. Then pray again. Is this right? Should I be doing this? And every single time that either, so, so in our case, I give on the first of the month, when it's drawn from my account, it sends me an email and says, John, you just gave X amount. I pray over it. I pray over it because it was a totally pointless and worthless use of my finances unless I pray over it, unless it starts to change me. Because I know that the thing that is most tethering me to this earth, these short 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years that I have on earth, no matter how much time I have, it's very short. 
We sang Amazing Grace yesterday when we've been there 10,000 years. My dad died at 65, my grandma died at 96. The difference of 30 years and 10,000 years is fractional. I know that the thing that is most tethering me to this earth are my personal finances and my security blanket for name the thing. That's the thing that's most tethering me to this earth. And so every year in January, we should, or in this case, February, March, or whatever, whenever you decide to do this with your family, I encourage you to do it this week, but if not, do it next week. Sit down, have a non-emotional conversation about what you want to offer to God out of your discretionary spending in the next year, and then follow through with it. And then next year in January, when you receive your giving statement, which you will do from this church or from whatever number, you will receive a giving statement or a tax form from whatever charitable place that you go. And if you give it to a homeless person, just make sure you're writing down the numbers so you know what it is at the end of the year. Look at it all and say, is this what I set out to do? Chances are, if you follow the formula exactly, the answer will be yes. If the answer is no, and you didn't meet your, your, your goal, say, I'm going to do better next year. Or maybe you're going to see it and you're going to go, yeah, but look, I still, I'm still comfortable. Wow, I, I, I did all of this. I did way above and beyond what I thought I was going to be able to do. But the, the blessings in my life are even greater than I thought, and I'm still comfortable. Okay, do better. Do it every single year. Do it every single time you sit down. Because God doesn't need your money. Just hear that first and foremost. He created the universe with a word. Y'all, like, nobody here lives on the North Shore even. Like, God created the North Shore. You know what I mean? Like, God created whatever he wanted with a word. God doesn't need your money. It's not about that. It's not about God sitting up there. God's not up there with the books like, oh, Peter, I don't know if we're going to make it this year. I'm just, we might have to shut down the children's program because, Peter, I just feel like it. God can do, that is my Lucia tickets. God can do whatever he wants with or without your help. It's about whether you want to participate in what God is doing. It's about whether you want to be free of what God's hoping that you're free of. And maybe you'll see the giving statement and you'll go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that we did this. Praise God that we made it. And at any point, whether you give by a check on the first of the month or whether you do recurring donation or recurring donation to any organization, it is federal law that they have to give you an opportunity to opt out of that at any time. So you might start giving too much and then you go, oh man, I'm like not making rent here. I'm not making my mortgage here. I'm not making my car payment here. Maybe I need to back off a little bit. Man, what a wonderful experience. You can't do this. Most honestly, you can't do this if you're not going to totally and completely surrender your security to God. But I want to tell you that in doing that, you get new life. You get new life. It'll change your life. Because it changed my life. It could change your life. And then you, make you stop making decisions based on their financial impact in your life because you just go, God. Many of you know this, some of you don't. We're, we're in the process of adopting a child from foster care. That's an expensive thing to do in this country. Very expensive thing to do. Not something that necessarily we could do very easily. 
we just stop making decisions financially. We just start saying, okay, God, you're calling us to do this. We're going to just trust that if you're calling us to do this, that you'll provide. And so it becomes a joyous experience instead of a stressful one. And it'll be stressful. Y'all see this kid probably running around doing all these kinds of crazy things. It'll be stressful, but that part won't be because you just give it up. See, I want to tell you that most people in this congregation, I actually probably all of you are faithful in your giving. You don't need this sermon. That's why I haven't preached this sermon until now. You don't need it because most of you, if not all of you, are faithful in your giving. What I want to offer you is a new way to look at your faithfulness in your giving. Because maybe it will lead you to something deeper, to something, a wider theology of what you're doing. You might be faithful right now just because you're supposed to be. Please don't be faithful because you're supposed to be. Please be faithful because you are enjoying what God is doing through your faithfulness in your life. Most of you, and probably all of you, I don't look at the giving statement, so I don't know. Most of you, if not all of you, are faithful. So I don't want any person to go away thinking that I'm judging you or condemning you or telling you not give enough. No. What I want to do instead is offer you the opportunity to count the cost. To sit down with your spouse who together you own all that you have and ask the question, can we do better or do we need to back off and, and do something else because I'm just doing this because I want to do it or because I think I'm supposed to. Maybe the result of this is that the church income goes down. That's okay. As long as everybody has a more clear understanding of what this is supposed to do for your life, God will figure out the rest. How am I, how are we all in, in every way? How are we all in with our poker chips, with our finances, just as much as we're all in for sharing the sermon on Facebook, which could be a great evangelism tool. Maybe you're not all in in that way and you want to be. How am I all in with everything in my life? Because as soon as we give up that security, as soon as we surrender that to God, God starts to do amazing and wonderful and awe-inspiring things in our lives. You're only holding yourself back. That's what I'm here to tell you. I'm going to say this. Join me in investing. You guys can come up. Join me in investing something that does not rust. We heard this last week. Something that cannot be stolen. Something that is not at the whims of billionaires on Wall Street in a 401k, but rather the Palestinian carpenter's son who decided to change the whole world to love unlovable people. If you are passionate about that mission, I invite you into a new discernment process, a process to be free of the things of the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know how uncomfortable it is in this day and age to talk about finances. You know where each and every one of us are. 
you know that there are people here who are giving everything. And those people are free and they're, they're listening to this word and hopefully they're saying yes and be encouraged, do the same. Lord, you also know there are people here who are giving in spite of their hearts. Lord, praise God for faithfulness that says faithfulness that I, I hope that I embody. Faithfulness that says sometimes I don't want to do this. Sometimes I get frustrated, but I'm going to lift it up and I'm going to pray and I'm going to say, oh man, we couldn't have lost that amount this month, but we're going to just pray and just lift it up because there's an emergency. And that's that there are people who don't know about Jesus and that there are people who don't, aren't being spiritually developed and there are people who, who, who are young, who are falling away, and there are people who are old who are falling away. Lord, give us the same urgency for others as we have for urgency for our own security. Lord, I know for most people here, it's not about greed, it's about trust, if there's any issue at all. So I ask you in this moment, renew our hearts so that we would trust you more. Renew our spirits so that we would listen to you more. And move us not just to assent, theological assent to the ideas of what I've said, but actually to action. Lord, I encourage every single person in this room, I encourage them through the power of the Holy Spirit to sit down and ask the question, what am I doing? Can I do less? Can I do more? Because only through asking that question can we fully surrender to your will and your power in our lives. Lord, you have the power to completely change our circumstances because you had the power to make us in the first place. And we learned through the story of Ananias and Sapphira that even if we had withheld anything from Lord, you, Lord, for our future, we may not have a future. We don't know how illness will affect us. We don't know how tomorrow we will be here. And Lord, we hope that if tomorrow we are not here, it is because you have come back and you've set this all to rights and this whole sermon was pointless. If not, to turn hearts back to you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.